there's wonderful research on how important our social groups are to our confidence, our beliefs about what's possible. When you're randomly assigned to a roommate who is a better student as a freshman in college, your grades go up. And likewise, when you're randomly assigned to a roommate who's a worse student, your grades go down, which just highlights the power of these kinds of social forces. We look around, we see what other people are doing and we say, oh, maybe I should do that too. Or maybe this is possible. Oh, you're studying on a Friday night. Maybe that's not an unreasonable thing to do. Maybe I should try studying on a Friday night. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. Coming to you live today from Nashville, Tennessee. Tell you why in just a minute, but I want to tell you first about our guest that we have today. She is Katie Milkman. She's a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's the author of a new book called How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. We're going to discuss all the games you can play with yourself to trick yourself into becoming better. Is that a good way to put it? Let's say that it's a great discussion of the effective strategies by which you can implement change in your life, everywhere from diet to exercise to relationships, how you can go about making more positive change in your life. We'll talk to Katie in just a second. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on. Well, first of all, let me say welcome to the new members of the Crazy Money Podcast listeners group on Facebook. That'd be Tim Gartland. Hello, Tim. Shannon O'Dell, Brandy B, and Sue McFarland. I may have said Sue last time. Sue, did I say you last time? Anyway, if I did, you get a double dip. Welcome back. Oh, I'm in Nashville. Why am I in Nashville? Well, if you're new to the podcast, hello, how are you? Hope you're doing great. This will be news to you, but I'm a comedian in addition to being deadly serious on this podcast, talking about the serious business of happiness. In addition to doing that, I'm a comedian. I tell jokes in front of strangers, and I've been doing that on the road this past few days as part of the Sticks and Collective Soul summer tour. I'm doing eight dates around the South and Mid-South and Midwest, I guess you could say. And let's see, we did three shows in a row, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. Today is Monday, and we have a day off here in Nashville. We were in Alpharetta, Georgia, drove overnight to Memphis, Tennessee, then went to Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, we're having our day off here. It is weird. It's like rock and roll camp for me because I'm sleeping on the Collective Soul bus, and the guys have been very, very gracious to accommodate me, have me on their tour. It's wild. You do your show, hang out, have a couple beers, have a lot of laughs with the guys in the bus, and eventually go to bed, and you wake up in a parking lot at some amphitheater in suburban wherever you're going, and then you like kick around for... 12 hours, do your show, and then do it all over again. This has been really fun, and it's going to be cool to do it for another week. I don't see how these bands do this for months at a time. I think I would go bonkers trying to do it for an extended period of time. Crazy, crazy stuff. The Collective Soul guys I've known for a while, but just met the Sticks guys. They have been incredibly gracious. It's interesting to meet guys that have been in this business for 50 years, no joke. They've been very, very nice. Their whole crew is like a family, and they put on a big show, man. I got to tell you, Sticks, these guys are old school, legitimate performers. They are entertainers, and their body of music makes for a like two and a half hour show. It's pretty amazing how long they play, and the audiences have been totally into it, like incredibly into it. Anyway, that's what I'm doing on the road. It's been a lot of fun. I'll share more anecdotes 
in a uh, an extended episode in a couple of weeks, but that's it for today. Let's talk about Katie Milkman, shall we? Katie, as I mentioned before, is a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the host of Charles Schwab's popular behavioral economics podcast, Choiceology, and the author of the new bestseller, How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. What if you are where you want to be? What if where you want to be is where you are? What do you think? I guess you could argue that you could always be doing where you are a little better. And Katie's book is an in-depth exploration of the way you can take very, very good and make it great. Over the course of her career, Katie has worked with or advised dozens of organizations on how to spur positive change. These organizations include Google, the U.S. Department of Defense, the American Red Cross, 24-Hour Fitness, and many more. She's an award-winning scholar and teacher. She writes frequently about behavioral science for major media outlets such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, and Scientific American. I don't read that one. Uh, Maybe I should pick it up. She earned her undergraduate degree from Princeton University, summa cum laude, of course, and her PhD from Harvard University, where she studied computer science and business. As you may have surmised, she's incredibly brilliant, but she's also funny and fun and was a great pleasure to talk to. Please enjoy this conversation with Katie Milkman. Katie Milkman, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Katie, you've just released a book called How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, and it's getting a lot of great press and reviews. It's all over social media. But before we jump into talking about how to change, let's talk about why to change. I'm 52, and according to the actuarial tables, I am two-thirds done. Can't I just coast in? Why do I have to change? Well, you can coast in and that'll be fine. (laughs) And you don't need to change in huge ways, but most of us have some aspects of our lives where we feel like we could improve. And by the way, if you don't, that also isn't a great sign because we should always be improving (laughs) and always striving to get better. But one reason, actually, I think it's important to say that change is good is that there's great research showing we tend to change too little. We tend to stick to our ways, stick to our tried and true path. And there was this really interesting study done by Stephen Levitt, who is a co-author of Freakonomics. And he became really famous after he had this best-selling book. He's an economist at the University of Chicago. And all these people were coming to him for advice. And most of their advice actually amounted to asking, I have this opportunity to make a big life change. Should I take it? You know, Should I open my own business? Should I divorce my spouse? And so on. Those kinds of decisions. And he felt woefully unqualified to give a good answer. So as a scientist, he came up with a really clever experiment. He decided he was going to, on his popular Freakonomics blog, ask people who are contemplating a change to let him give them advice on whether to do it or not. And he also told them that the advice would actually come from a coin flip. So a coin would determine, you know, heads take the new path, tails don't. And they understood that. And he said, but we're going to see. And then I'm going to ask you to report back on how it went. So, of course, some people didn't follow the advice of the coin flip, but enough did that there was a significant difference in the number who changed when they got heads and the number who changed when they got tails. They come back to the site, report on their happiness. And what he found is that the people who were told to change, more of whom did, we're happier later, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And it actually only happened when the life change was big that they were contemplating, not small, but happiness does seem to be associated with change, which I find fascinating. So tails, I stay married, heads, I dump my husband. 
That sounds just slightly less ridiculous than astrology in my mind. It's equally ridiculous to astrology, I think. The point is that these people are really on the fence, right? So he's not coaching people who, and by the way, right, like this is not the right way to make a decision about whether or not (laughs) to change. I'm not advising people to follow a coin flip, right? There's great decision analysis tools you can use to figure out what are the costs and the benefits to do a pre-mortem and so on. But he was trying to figure out for these people who kind of already gone through that and really just couldn't make up their minds, if a tiny bit of chance can nudge them over the edge or not, then can you measure whether there's any difference in the outcomes? So we could debate the ethics of the experiment. These are not people, obviously, (laughs) for whom there was a huge difference they thought between making the change or not. And there could be some self-selection there, right? If I pick up a book called How to Change, or if I ask Stephen Levitt for help on how to change, then I'm somebody who is predisposed to change. Oh, absolutely. There's tons of self-selection. I mean, enormous self-selection. And I think that's also critically important. These are the kinds of people who are on the precipice and they're just not quite sure, but taking the jump and it makes them a little happier. And that makes tons of sense also from everything we know about escalation of commitment and status quo bias that we generally, when we face a situation where change would make us better off, we're too hesitant to take the leap. It's different than your exact question, like, can you just coast? But I think it's an interesting study. I always try to lead with laziness and provocative questions. So there's my bias. What are the (laughs) risks of trying to change? If I try to change and I fail, will I be less happy than if I had never tried? That's a great question. And I don't know that there's a fantastic answer to it. The answer might be that you'll be less happy, but there's two streams of research that come to mind that can help, I think. One is that it seems when we're pursuing a goal it gives us a sense of purpose and having a sense of purpose tends to make us happier. Now that doesn't speak to what if I fail, but in general, that goal pursuit is a source of happiness. And that's regardless of the outcomes, it's sort of a, it's about the journey, not the destination kind of finding. And then the other thing that I think is interesting is research on what happens when some event occurs that we we're really worried about some bad event or actually some good event. So, you know, you win the lottery or you have a horrible accident and you become impaired in some way, your functioning becomes impaired in some way. It turns out it matters a lot less to your happiness than you forecast it will. And this is also true for minor events, major and minor events. We overestimate the impact they will have on our happiness. It's something called impact bias. What that probably means, and it's related to what's called hedonic adaptation. We kind of have like a general level of happiness and there's not a lot that can meaningfully shift us. There are things you can do, a happy marriage, spending more time exercising, getting more sleep, meditation. There are things we can do that make us happier. And obviously, you know, being more financially secure, those things matter, but they're not, they don't matter as much as we think they will. And something like failing at a goal, it might feel or sound when you forecast it like a really big deal. But this research suggests it probably won't be that big of a deal and you'll adjust pretty quickly, much faster than you think to your baseline level of happiness. You address all different kinds of change in your book, everything from diet and exercise to professional athletes taking their game to the highest level. So let's start with the latter. What can I learn about change from Andre Agassi? I love that you gave me a chance to talk about Andre Agassi, who is one of my favorite athletes of all time. I was a tennis player, I should mention. So one person who read the book early gave me the feedback. There's a lot of tennis in this book. (laughs) How far did you compete in tennis? Where did that? 
I was a nationally ranked player in my teens. I think my highest ranking in the U.S. for women's juniors was around 125, maybe a little below that. <laughs> and then I played Division One college tennis for a couple of years. And then actually I quit halfway through so that I could focus on, I got really interested in research, which is what became my life's work. But I did it for a couple of years and it was exciting. And I learned so much about life from the sport. And Agassi taught me a lot that I was able to incorporate into the book. So full disclosure, you have an Agassi bias. I have a huge Agassi bias. Yes, I do. And by the way, I should say that my publisher told me they got a copy to him and it was like the most exciting, you know, the book was on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, but next to having Agassi have a copy, I couldn't care less. That was so exciting. Okay, so full disclosure. The story is about a moment in his career when things were not going well. So he was a child prodigy. Everyone expected great things from Andre Agassi. And he just wasn't living up to expectations. A bunch of his peers on the tour, like Pete Sampras and Jim Courier and Michael Chang, they'd grown up playing together. Everyone thought Agassi was more talented, but they were outperforming him. He was ranked about 32nd in the world in the early 90s. And everyone knew who he was because he had this really flashy image. He'd been in a lot of commercials, but he was just not... He was not living up to expectations. Okay, so he's struggling. His coach has left him and he has this important pivotal dinner with Brad Gilbert. Brad Gilbert is another player on the tour who no one thought was all that talented, but who had done tremendously well. He'd risen to number four in the rankings and he'd just written a New York Times bestselling book called Winning Ugly about his strategy and how he outsmarted his opponents. And even though it wasn't elegant, he would win matches. No one thought he had any right to win. And Gilbert tells Agassi, you are doing this all wrong. You have all this talent and you have been playing this game where you're completely focused on defeating your opponents with your strengths, but you're not thinking about letting them lose or exploiting their weaknesses. You're not being strategic. And if you play a different game, you could become great. So this is a revelation. He hires Gilbert as his coach, goes on. He was unseated, which means no one expected him to do very well in the U.S. Open that year. He goes on to win the U.S. Open, the first unseated player to do so in decades, and reach the number one world ranking, which he held for about 100 weeks over the course of his career, which, of course, had ups and downs. But this was clearly, I think, a turning point when he had this realization. And how it relates to change, (laughs) it's really changed his career. But I think it's a beautiful illustration of the most important principle I've discovered in all of my research on this topic, which is that too often we do not figure out what opponent are we up against. We don't think carefully about what we're facing and make a strategic plan. We play sort of a universal strategy, right? Like set big audacious goals or visualize success. And we don't think carefully, what is my opponent? What is my obstacle? Why can't I change? Is it because I have habits that are too sticky and I prefer the path of least resistance. Is it because of impulsivity that's getting in my way? Is it because I'm forgetful? Uh, Is it because I don't have the confidence? And depending on what the challenge is, the best approach to take that will get you the furthest is going to be really different. That's some Sun Tzu type advice, by the way. I thought Agassi could have read ancient military strategy. Totally. It's not like no one's ever thought about strategy before or said strategy is important, but I actually don't know that anyone has said it clearly when it comes to making personal change, that it's critical to match your solution to your 
challenge. It's normally the case that we look for these one size fits all sort of silver bullet type solutions. And that's been a challenge for me when I'm talking to companies throughout my career, when I'm talking to individuals, they've heard of, oh, this method, I think sounds really great. Does this work? And my answer is always, you know, it depends. What's the situation? What are the barriers here? That method might work, but it worked in the setting you've heard about because it suited the problem. And I don't know that it's, it's yours. So I agree, this is not like brand new idea, but it's a bizarrely underapplied to personal change. Well, the reason I even mentioned that is because it's a very American, I consider it a very American way to say the way to win is to outmuscle somebody or is to work harder. If I got a problem, all I got to do is pull an all-nighter and fix the problem. Bullheadedness and more hours isn't always the way to approach every problem. Right. I also want to say the author of the foreword of my book, one of my closest friends and co-authors is Angela Duckworth, who's studied the power and importance of grit. And I certainly have learned a lot from her about how important it is to be persistent. But I know she would agree with the idea that it's much more effective if you persist and push hard and work harder with a strategy that matches what you're up against than if you just do that without knowing what your opponent is. Okay, so let's dive into some of those opponents. There are myriad examples in the book. How can I make going to the gym more palatable? Oh, now you're getting into my favorite example from my own life. This is sort of what turned me into a change researcher because I was an engineering graduate student with this very problem. By the way, there are many answers. I'm just giving you my favorite one to start with. But for a lot of us, going to the gym feels like a chore. So the barrier is it's not fun. And that was my barrier when I was a grad student. I knew I needed to exercise more regularly, but I would come home from a long day of classes and all I wanted to do was curl up on the couch and binge watch TV or read novels. And I also needed to get my homework done, but I was procrastinating on that. So I came up actually with a solution that solved both of those challenges, which is what I call temptation bundling. And I've since studied it and shown it doesn't just help me, it can help other people. What I did was I only allowed myself to enjoy my favorite indulgent entertainment while I was exercising at the gym. And all of a sudden, I started craving trips to the gym at the end of a long day, enjoying my workouts because time would fly while I was there. And I was no longer procrastinating on my work at home because I had this rule. I wasn't allowed to enjoy the indulgences except at the gym. And I'd get my workout in, I'd get my fill of those sources of entertainment. I came home ready to work. So for me, this was great. It's, I think, One of many ways that research suggests we can make the gym more fun is through temptation bundling. You can also just choose exercise that you enjoy. There's great research showing most of us think we should do it the most effective way when we have a goal. So you might look for the maximally punishing workout you can choose, but you actually persist longer when you choose a fun way to approach your goal, even though most of us find that counterintuitive. So choosing the Zumba class with a friend might be the better way to get your workouts in. If I take the Mary Poppins approach, I allow myself the spoonful of sugar, that is the fact that I can read a John Grisham novel on the treadmill, I'm going to stick with that habit longer than if I push myself to go to a spin class, which might have greater cardiovascular benefits in the short run, but I don't enjoy it as much because I don't get that treat that goes along with it. Is that the idea? That's the idea. Assuming you're not a spin class junkie and that you don't hate John Grisham novels, that's exactly the idea. It's got to be, you got to pick something that truly is fun for you. And we have the wrong intuition. We think we'll be able to just push through, right? Nike tells us just do it. 
But the research, and this is work done by Ayelet Fishbach at the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley at Cornell University shows that intuition is wrong and that persistence is driven by instant gratification. It has to be something we can enjoy and look forward to. If we dread it, we stop doing it. Does that just becomes habit then? I like going to the gym eventually, even if I'm not reading a John Grisham novel. Are those two things always related or can I build a non, can I kick the Grisham habit at some point? It's a great question. And my advice would be no, based on the research that <laughs> we should not, we shouldn't assume that it will just truly go on autopilot and we no longer need the treat because then it ceases to be enjoyable. The rewards are no longer there that got us there. And so we really need to use this kind of a tool persistently rather than expecting things to go on autopilot. There may be some things that are like truly muscle memory. Like I've done research on hospital caregivers hand washing when they enter a new patient's room. That feels like the kind of thing that maybe truly it would become muscle memory and habit. And if you're linking with a treat initially and you stop, you'd keep doing it. But the gym is effortful. The gym is something where if you stop having these rewards you would expect it to extinguish. And we actually did one study where just a disruption to habit of a couple of weeks was enough to destroy the effectiveness of this kind of bundle because people are no longer looking forward to and craving it. And then it stops being helpful to them. What's another example of temptation bundling? Right. So it does not need to be used at the gym, though. I, <laughs> I like that example and think it's particularly useful. And that's where I have studied it. There's research suggesting that kids can use it to make studying more fun, right? If you study with music and snacks and your friends around and that gets kids to persist longer on difficult problem sets, there's always podcast bundling. You can bundle your favorite podcast like this one while you're doing household chores or cooking a fresh meal for your family, which also I've heard people bundle sometimes with their favorite bottle of wine. Ah, so there's first all step, different... First step in every recipe, Katie, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> the red wine you need. Marinate the cook. That's the... <laughs> there you go. Okay. I love that. Yes. So those are some examples. You can think of lots of others once you start to recognize the pattern is just something you enjoy that makes it more fun, but maybe that you wouldn't want to indulge in too much outside of this context. Link it with the thing that feels like a chore. So that thing becomes more of a pleasure. Gamification is a related concept and one we see everywhere. I've got a, a meditation app and I swear there's a leaderboard on it. Doesn't that sound a little bit counterintuitive for meditation? It is. It's hilarious. And you were not the first person to point out that that seems ridiculous. <laughs> I'm the I'm best meditator. I, I'm going to kick your butt in meditation. <laughs> I mean... I can see gamification also. Speaking of spin class, I go to the spin class and I think I keep going back because there's a leaderboard behind the instructor and I am a sucker for a leaderboard. I'm being manipulated. Tell me how. You are being manipulated to some degree. Gamification is very related to this, although it's different in that most of the other things we've talked about, temptation modeling can change the actual experience, right? You may actually enjoy your workout more while you're distracted listening to an audiobook, say, or watching your favorite TV show. Gamification is more like wrapping paper that's put on the GIF, right? It doesn't change the activity itself or your experience of it, but it might make it more fun because now you have some superordinate goal imposed. You want to keep your streak or get a star or end up on a leaderboard. So it can be effective because that can be motivating. There's research suggesting, for instance, in the context of exercise, that gamification helped families who were randomly assigned to a gamified version of an exercise program take more steps 
than another group of families that just had their exercise tracked and were encouraged to do it more. So it can work, but it seems that it's really important that you are bought into whatever goal is being gamified. There's research suggesting that if your employer, for instance, imposes a gamification scheme on you to try to get you to be more productive and you find it manipulative or just not fun, that can even backfire. So forced gamification, forced fun is not a winning strategy. But a lot of these apps that you're mentioning that use gamification tools are related to goal pursuit we're doing for ourselves. And that may be part of the reason they persist in adding these bells and whistles to try to make it a little bit more fun. And I don't know of evidence where it backfires when it's associated with a goal you're trying to achieve. Let's talk about another one of those barriers that prevent us from changing. And one of the things you mentioned in the book is present bias. Jerry Seinfeld used to have a bit about night guy who stayed up late and he screwed over morning guy who has to get up early and go to work. How does present bias fit into that scheme? I love that you gave that example. I show that video in my Warden MBA class because I love it so much. It's such a great illustration. So present bias is our tendency to overweight instant gratification and underweight whatever long-term value will get out of something. So actually all of the things we've just been talking about temptation bundling, the importance of making it fun are effective because of present bias. So present bias is this barrier where if it isn't enjoyable, if it isn't instantly gratifying, we aren't going to do it. So night guy and morning guy, the skit, what's so lovable to me and brilliant about that is it's actually pointing out that sometimes we recognize our present bias. It's one of a small number of behavioral biases that have been documented by researchers that you don't really need a researcher to point out to you. You know, some more esoteric biases that are a real problem. Somebody needs to tell you about them. But present bias, we are quite aware of. And what's interesting is that sets up cool dynamics where we know we have a problem coming down the line, right? Morning guy knows night guy is going to create problems by staying up too late and leading him to be exhausted in the morning. And so morning guy can be strategic and try to think about, okay, I have this problem. It's coming down the line. How can I set myself up for success so night guy can't go off the rails? And that creates an opportunity. Normally, we think about, say, a benevolent policymaker or manager setting up rules and systems to prevent us from making bad decisions. But once we recognize present bias, we actually have the opportunity to set up rules for ourselves. So for instance, We're used to getting fined, for instance, if we speed. That's something that makes sense to us. We can actually fine ourselves if we make bad decisions. So there are systems that are called commitment devices where you can put money on the line and forfeit that money to a charity of your choice. And it can be a charity you hate, which (laughs) I think is really funny. It made me ask myself, which charity would it most hurt me to make a donation to? Right. You got to think about politics, right? And that there are charities on either side of contentious issues. So you can put that money on the line, forfeit it to a charity you hate, and have a friend or a device hold you accountable to whatever goal you've set. And this turns out to improve outcomes. There's a great randomized controlled trial showing when smokers who wanted to quit had access to a commitment device like this. They could put money in an account that they would forfeit if they failed to quit smoking six months later, according to a urine test. That improved their outcomes relative to a standard quit smoking program by about 30%. So it's really powerful. You can find your future self. And Night Guy, Morning Guy illustrates, right, if you understand you're going to be tempted and you want to figure out how do I increase the price of my vice? How do I find myself for giving into temptation so I'll be less likely to? 
there are these tools that exist that can help you do that. The price of my vice. I like that. So swear jars work. Is that what you're concluding? That's exactly right. Yeah. And (laughs) swear jars work. Although I do not know of a randomized controlled trial on swear jars. So I'm really basing that on, on studies of other fine, like systems. There's your next experiment. I want to know exactly the frequency of Katie Milkman swearing and what penalties you've imposed on yourself for compound swear words. I don't really mind swearing, I will admit. So I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't penalize myself for that one. There you go. One of the coolest examples you use, or one of the most interesting examples you use in this book to demonstrate what a commitment device was, was something called a locked bank account. I'd never heard of this before. Tell me about that. I love that you asked about that study. It's so interesting. It's work that was done by Dean Carlin and Nava Ashraf and Wesley Yip in the Philippines with a bank called Green Bank. And what they did is they partnered with a bank to create a new kind of savings account where when you put money in that account, you chose in advance a date by which you would be allowed to extract money, but before that, you wouldn't be allowed to, or you chose a savings goal. And until you reach that savings goal, you're not going to be allowed to take your money out. People were offered a standard account, of course, with standard interest rate, and you can take your money in and out whenever you want. But experimentally, a group of customers also were offered this new account, this locked bank account that has exactly the same interest rate as a standard account, but you can't take your money out. And the idea is it might help you accumulate more savings. And if you recognize that you're going to be tempted by present bias to go and dip into savings to buy a shiny new device or a birthday present, and you want to see it accumulate, you can choose to put some money in this locked account so those temptations won't derail you. And what the researchers found is that when they randomly assigned some people to have access to the special commitment savings account and others to just have access to a normal account. And again, the people with the commitment account could use a normal account. They just have a bonus kind of account. Just having access to it increased savings by 80% year over year, which I find astounding. And only 30% of people offered this account even used it. But the whole pool increased savings by 80%. So you can imagine how much it increased savings for the people who adopted it to drive that kind of a return. Along those lines, do apps like Moment that monitor our social media usage, are they effective in actually curbing them? Because I've tried to remove Facebook from my phone and I've removed LinkedIn from my phone. And after a month or two, I'm like, I got to put it on there you know, for whatever reason, whatever excuse. Yeah. What are the best ways to curb my social media addiction? Great question. I don't know of data on the efficacy of apps like Moment specifically, but we certainly know that when we use commitment devices, anything to commit, I will not exceed this number of minutes or I'll pay a fine, for instance, or turn it off after this number of minutes. That should work theoretically because those kinds of tools work in other settings. And also monitoring and having a better idea of exactly how much usage you're doing. Again, I don't know of a study specifically in this setting, but we know from other settings, like there's a study I really love showing if you know exactly how many gallons of water you're using in the shower and it's shown in real time, it substantially reduces your water use. So that kind of real-time feedback, because it makes it more salient and you know what you intend to do and now it's right in front of you that you're not doing as well as you'd hoped and you can see just how problematic it is, tends to be helpful. Seems like a great commitment device is the people around me. They can help me stay more committed to a goal. How have my mediocre friends held me back from being a better person? Oh, that's such a sad way of thinking about it. But (laughs) there's wonderful research on how important our social groups are to our 
confidence, our beliefs about what's possible. When you're randomly assigned to a roommate who is a better student as a freshman in college, your grades go up. And likewise, when you're randomly assigned to a roommate who's a worse student, your grades go down, which just highlights the power of these kinds of social forces. We look around, we see what other people are doing and we say, oh, maybe I should do that too. Or maybe this is possible. Oh, you're studying on a Friday night. Maybe that's not an unreasonable thing to do. Maybe I should try studying on a Friday night. So what that means is if we're thinking about how to achieve our goals, there's opportunities to try to surround yourself with people who are going to be role models and who can help you see what's possible and how to achieve that. Because if we deliberately imitate the strategies that are working for others around us, there's research also showing that, not shockingly, can be very effective and help us achieve more. It happens naturally when we're around people that we imitate them, but just being told, try to actually copy and paste a strategy a friend is using to achieve a goal that's similar to yours improves performance over just telling people to make plans or even giving them a strategy. So we can use the social information to do better and we can seek out friends and connections to help lift us up. Get better friends, in other words. Where does the study of change fit into an MBA program? You know, I think it's increasingly a big part of curricula. The boom in behavioral economics over the last 15 years has been most felt by MBA programs, actually. They've been leaders in incorporating the insights from this field that I'm a part of into the curriculum. And we offer a class at Wharton, and there are similar classes offered at many other schools called managerial decision-making, where I teach students about all of the kinds of principles that are outlined in my book that we've been discussing with the goal of helping them become better managers. Because once you understand this, if you want to help other people change and achieve their goals, you can be more effective. And also, of course, helping make them more effective in their own lives. So I think it's a really important part of a business education. And almost every top business school at this point offers some of this material to their students. As we close, I just want to let everybody know there's a lot more good stuff in the book about cue-based planning, about how fresh starts can help you get off to a more effective pattern of change. So I will direct you to How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be by my guest today, Katie Milkman. Katie, where can our listeners find out more about you? Probably the best place to find me is on my website, www.katymilkman.com with a Y, not an I-E. And there's information there about the book, about my podcast, Choiceology, about the research I do at the Wharton School, and also how to subscribe to my newsletter, Milkman Delivers. That's a great title for a newsletter. I love it. Thank you. Katie, thank thank you you so much for your time. Again, the book is How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Katie Milkman, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. All right. I am very grateful to Katie for making the time to speak with me. And you on Crazy Money, she's been very, very busy because the book has been such a big hit. And I hope that you found some of what she had to say to be thought-provoking and maybe helpful in some of the changes you're trying to make in your life. Let's jump to takeaways. First of all, never forget about your present bias. Present bias is the tendency to prioritize what feels good in the moment versus what will benefit you for the long run. I'll give you an example. I just ate a big plate of hot fried chicken at Hattie B's Hot Chicken here in Nashville. And boy, was present guy happy, but boy, was future guy maybe going to have to pay back a little in the form of uh, exercise and gastric discomfort. (laughs) Second one, the company that you keep matters. Your friends and your habits are highly correlated. 
Think about that as you see the friends you choose to spend time with. Think about that for the friends your kids choose to spend time with. I know my mom always said I had great friends, and I think that's true. Uh, Not all of them had great habits, but the ones that have stuck around are the ones that have the best balance of good habits and work ethic, and also the funniest ones, of course. Uh, Lastly, temptation bundling, the spoonful of sugar technique. I like to read on the treadmill, and it's what keeps me going back to the gym a lot. And some days when it's nice outside, I don't feel like reading. I will uh, listen to my favorite podcast. You might be listening to Crazy Money while you walk. And if you are, I am grateful to you for doing that and taking care of yourself at the same time. All right. Next week, we're going to do a best of. Be sure to tune back into one of the top of the 115 episodes of Crazy Money in the past two years. I've got five more shows left on this run with Collective Soul. We'll be doing more great live interviews when I get back to Atlanta. Until then, if you have a minute, please do write a review of Crazy Money, share with your friends, and in the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.